thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're continuing our study of the book of Revelation. We're going to be uh, talking about the seventh trumpet, ostensibly the longest and most difficult of them all. It is uh, within the context of the seventh trumpet that we're going to see the woman closed with the sun in chapter 12. And um, during the festival, the beginning of the festival, we had a procession uh, with Bishop Brahm and uh, the purpose of it was to crown Our Lady. And right as the procession started, uh, there was a rather rare uh, phenomena known as the solar halo, which is essentially a rainbow that forms around the sun. So it isn't your usual rainbow that uh, forms as an arc from earth to earth. This one was in the sky around the sun. It has something to do physically with the... Uh, fact that you may have some cold crystals or something like that in the middle. All that I know is that it's fairly rare. It doesn't happen that often. The interesting thing here is that it started right as we began the procession, stayed with us throughout the procession, and dissipated at the end of the procession. Um, And as we're going up, people saw that and immediately interpreted this as a sign. And they are right. It is a sign. Um, But we need to understand why it is a sign. So what we saw was effectively a halo, a rainbow around the sun, which symbolizes, uh, in our case, the crowning of Our Lady. The reason why it is a sign is because the sun itself, as you know, is a symbol of the sun, Jesus Christ. And St. Bernard speaks of Our Lady, he speaks of the relationship between Jesus and Mary as the relationship between the sun and the light. So Mary is the light that emanates from the sun. So she's with the sun, but she's not the sun. She cannot stand on her own. She doesn't have that power that the sun has, but she's indistinguishable from the sun in that she's made of the same nature, or rather they have the same, they share the same nature. So he has a whole thing about the relationship between Mary and Jesus as a relationship between the sun and the light. And what do we see then? We see the sun forming that crown, crowning his mother. Okay. And that was uh, very, very powerful for us as a, um, as a sacrament that in, in nature that confirms a couple of things. Number one, as we said, when those things happen in nature, immediately the sense that we have, the religious sense that we have, is that 
we are in a temple. Suddenly, the scientific space goes away, so to speak, and is replaced by a temple. Our nature lifts our minds and our hearts into prayer. But that is the true nature of nature. It's religious. And it's liturgical. It happened during the liturgy. It didn't happen outside of it. So, he essentially our Lord was confirming and consoling and strengthening that little gesture of ours where we declared Mary queen. And it was indeed a very beautiful sign. Um, that's how the book of Revelation needs to be read in relationship to natural events. Right? It's, 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 it is uh, truly a book that explains to us how God is constantly intervening in history on a regular basis. That's how we have to see it. Now, we're going to be talking more about the crowning later. We're not going to be able to cover it today. Uh, one thing I want to say is, uh, I want to remind you, the next two weeks, there's no Bible study. I'm going to be away. Uh, we, will, uh, we will get back together on the third week of June. What I want to do tonight, hopefully, is walk you through the seventh trumpet and begin to ask some of the questions we're going to have to answer. And hopefully, if we have enough time, we'll go back to the beginning part of it, which is uh, starting with chapter 11, verse 15, and see if we can cover that tonight. So turn uh, with me to chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, verse 15. Now, by way of recollection, we're going to, um, we're going to remind ourselves what we've talked about in the previous the previous section, all the way from the beginning. So let's, again, remind ourselves, because it's very important not to lose track of the entire structure of the book, which is very easy to do when we look at all the details. So, if you recall, we had St. Saint, Saint John on the island of Patmos. And while he was there, he had a vision. And the first part of the vision was the Lord standing among the seven lampstands, talking to the churches. And we said that that corresponded to the liturgy of the Word, where the Word is being proclaimed and explained and taught. Right after that liturgy, we see St. John going up in spirit to heaven, where he actually is assisting at the liturgy seen from above. We've said this is not heaven as we will see it, because he is not given the beatific vision. He is given a liturgical vision of heaven, of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, the 24 elders representing the priesthood around him, the universal priesthood of Jesus Christ as it flows throughout his church, throughout the whole world, all sharing into the one mass of heaven. And during that liturgy, we saw the souls of the martyrs under the altar who are making what? A prayer of petition, which is what we do down here. And the prayer was mingled by an angel, by a ministerial angel, with incense. So that the reason why we use incense is to raise our prayers to heaven and glorify God. And those prayers and petitions were presented to God saying, How long, O Lord, before you effectively avenge our blood? And the answer was, wait until your number is complete. And right after that, after this prayer, we saw the response coming from the throne of God where a seal was where a um, a scroll was presented which was sealed and no man was found who could open the seal because no man 
ones without guilt, other than, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes and opens the seal. And as he opens the seal, we saw the, we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We saw the various... I'm sorry, I've got things a little bit mixed up. Let me fix them for you. First, there was the 24 elder giving glory to God as a result of that glorification of God. We saw the scroll with the seven seals. And as the seals were open, we saw the four horsemen. And then we saw the souls under the altar making the prayer of petition. So prayer of thanksgiving and glorification first, then prayer of petition. And then after that, we saw the introduction to the trumpet. So the whole opening of the seals was a preparation. Warning were sent to earth, preparing earth, telling earth, repent or else. Then the trumpets came, and the trumpets are, which is what we're going through, are effectively a partial punishment. The purpose of it is to allow some to convert. So through this punishment, God wants people to convert, to come back. And we saw that the first four trumpets were about God inflicting or affecting nature. The earth, the grass, the trees, the first trumpet, then the sea, and what's in it, the second, then the sun and the moon and the stars, the third, and then the fourth, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, the, the third was the sun, and the fourth was the heavens, right? All of nature is affected, but only in thirds, partially. And the fifth trumpet began as a series of spiritual woes. In the fifth trumpet, the pit is open, the abyss is open, and we saw those locusts, which are demonic spirits, who came and tortured men, but were not allowed to kill them for five months. And after that, we saw the horsemen, who came and then killed one-third of them. Right after the sixth trumpet, we saw this angel coming down from heaven, a mighty angel, unlike any other one we saw, that came down and swore by him who lived forever and ever that there will be no more delay, that the mystery of God shall now be revealed. And we studied the mystery of God where we saw that it is effectively the fact that the church, universal, not only will teach wisdom to us, but also to the principalities and powers. Effectively, there is a... There, we, we see that there is a passing of the baton from the angels to the humans. And the reason why this is happening is not because suddenly we are really good, better than the angels. It is simply because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Christ did not become an angel. He became a man. And hence, as God, man, priest, king, he now reigns. So the angels, who were actually the one at the forefront of the battle all the way through the Old Testament, are now passing the baton to the humans. Not going on vacation, they're still very much involved, but there are now all, all of us are now part of the Bride of Christ, the Church, which is going to be revealed. Chapter 12, which we're going to see right now, introduces the Ark of the Covenant. Actually, the end of chapter 11 introduces the Ark of the Covenant. And chapter 12 introduces the woman closed with the sun. In ancient writings, the highlight, the high point of a book is not its beginning or its end. Books were written concentrically. The high point is the middle. The book of Deuteronomy is written this way. The high point of the book of Deuteronomy is what? If you remember, I mean Exodus, before Deuteronomy. What happens in Exodus? Where's the high point of Exodus? 
Sinai. When they meet the Lord. Where does it happen? Smack in the middle. So it's like going up a mountain, coming back down. That's how they're written. And here, smack in the middle is what? The ark being revealed in heaven and the woman clothed with the sun. This is the mystery that the book was leading to and from which everything else is going to flow. All right? Now, the seventh trumpet, as I said earlier, is the most complex of them all. There are effectively five elements in it. From chapter 11, verse 15 through 12, verse 2, is the liturgy in heaven, the Ark of the Covenant, and the woman clothed with the sun. All of that is part of the liturgy. Okay? We would see the elders one, one more time glorifying God, prostrating themselves, bringing down their crowns and presenting them to God. As a result of this, the temple of God in heaven is open. The mystery now is being revealed. And we see the Ark of the Covenant in a temple. And right, right in the same passage, there is an unfortunate break in the chapters in Revelation. Because sort of the Ark of the Covenant is presented in 11. And then there's the break. And then you start with the woman close with the sun. And people think those are two different things. Readers are tempted to think that they're two different things. Actually, they're not. This Ark is the woman. There's no difference. So that's the liturgy in heaven, all the way through the woman. Then, as is the case, as is always the case, when God does something, when God takes action through the liturgy, what happens on earth? Gets better? No. It gets way worse. It gets way worse. This has been always the experience of the church. In the Catholic church, if you look at the historical period after every council, things got completely out of hand. Vatican II being one that's closest to us, and Vatican II is a great council, and right after Vatican II, we're still living in it. Okay? That's what we're going to see. We see the dragon now coming in full force, and we see the two beasts, and the war they're going to wage against the woman. Okay? That's the answer of the world to that liturgical action that was taken. Right after, after that, we go back to the liturgy with four heavenly proclamation, almost antiphonal proclamation by angels and a voice from heaven. And then we have the reaping of the harvest. The harvest is going to be reaped, both wheat and grapes. And the grapes are going to be gathered into the wine press of the Lord. And they're going to fill the seven bowls of wrath. By the way, if you've read the story, The Grapes of Wrath, and you wonder where that title came from, it comes from right there. That's the, that's the background behind the title of the, this very powerful and famous story about the depression called The Grapes of Wrath. And the pearly gate comes from later in Revelation where we see the church coming down from heaven. That's what we call it, the pearly gate. I'll take questions after if you don't mind. So, with that in mind, let's then walk through. So, so, before we walk through, one last thing I want to point out to you is that when we finish the seventh trumpet, things are left incomplete. They are in an incomplete state because they're going to be completed with the seven bowls of wrath, which effectively is the uh, penultimate woe or curse that God is going to impose on the world, and after that, the woe is passed. It is fully complete, and the heavenly Jerusalem 
can come down from heaven. All right? That's the overarching plan of the seventh trumpet. So let's read it now uh, and, and just ask some questions. I'd like uh, to put those before you so that within the next two weeks you can, if nothing else, come back and read it or reread the previous chapters, read it all together and see if you start on your own to be able to make sense uh, out of this. And I would also recommend for the next two weeks to take what we've read so far and apply it to you. I mean, one of the most powerful readings of the book of Revelation is the moral reading. Right? So when I say, for instance, that the trumpets are about those woes that God is sending in the world, when you read it morally, you apply that to yourself, to your soul, and you see how God is actually working through your own soul to cleanse you, to purify you, to prepare you for heaven. There's a very powerful moral reading about the, the interior life that we can gain from the book of Revelation. We don't have time to go through this because what we want is the literal sense. What was really meant? What, what is meant by the book in the literal sense? With that in mind, let's begin reading, and I will comment as we go through. So, beginning with verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is a very important principle of the liturgy. The liturgy will always affirm things which are true in heaven, and there is this historical delay between what, what is proclaimed true in heaven and its actual historical implementation. So there's a sort of a two steps. First, a decree is made in heaven. But more often than not, God will not take that decree and turn it into reality in that split second. The great exception being the creation of the world, before the fall. With the creation, there was no delay. What happened in the liturgy of creation happened both spiritually and physically at the same time. And the Lord said, and it was. And the Lord said, and it was. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. You can go back and read that, those chapters of Genesis and see and look at them with the eyes of the liturgy. See it as what we call the liturgy of creation. It is a liturgical act, so to speak, on, on the part of the Trinity. Because remember, for the Trinity, there is no difference between liturgy and there, there's nothing but liturgy. Praise, thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving and life-giving. That's what the liturgy is. For us fallen men, there is a clear separation because the liturgy is not to our taste. It's too heavenly. And we want more earthly food. We're not yet used to the food of heaven. And it's only by practice and by letting ourselves, letting go of all the things that attach us to earth that we can become more and more attached to the liturgy. Okay? So this decree now says, essentially, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of God. Why is that the case? Because of the, because of the incarnation, passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, one thing I've not said to you all along, because there's so much I need to get to cover here, is that in the background of all of this book of Revelation is the death and passion, the passion, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
it's completely in the back. I mean, we know it from the Lamb, the Lamb that's, that stands as though slain. We know it from here, from what is being said implicitly. Why is it that now the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of God and not before? What was lacking? Could not God made the kingdom of the world his own kingdom before? No, he couldn't in a sense. Why? Because of original sin. What makes the kingdom of the world the kingdom of the world? Original sin. Right? What makes it now the kingdom of God? Christ. Christ. And how does the world become the kingdom of God? Through the liturgy. Through the church. That's why Christ said, go forth and make disciples of all nations. Not make disciples in all nations. Make of all the nations disciples. Because the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of Christ. Okay? But that has been declared in heaven. It is not a reality on earth yet. It's going to take our participation. That's how God wills it. Right? Christ said, go forth and make disciples of all. He didn't say, go forth and I will make them. That wasn't the intent. You go and you make it. He has come not to tell us, look how good I am. I can do all things. Woohoo. Am I not great? That was never his intention. He came to give us the power we need to do what we're supposed to do. He even told us, you will do things even greater than I. See, Christ has no ego trip. He has no problem allowing us to do things even greater than he. All right? And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying... So notice the worship. Worship is not a purely spiritual thing that I do in my head. I don't have to go to church. I can sit in my house and pray. No, it's communal. All 24 of them together did the same bodily movement. You notice that? That's called communion. And this bodily movement is part of that heavenly liturgy. That's why it is so important for us to follow the rubric of the Mass and not add to it one yota. Because we don't make liturgy. So the rubric in the Latin rite does not tell us to raise our hands in the Our Father. We keep them closed. We don't make liturgy. In the Maronite rite, the rubric says you stand. Well, we stand. We don't kneel. That's simple. If you really love the church, you obey the church. Even in the minute little details like that. Because you want to show communion. You want to show that we worship here as they worship up there. We are a mirror of heaven. We're mirroring what was going on up in heaven. So we do according to the liturgy. Okay? So all of them, they prostrate themselves. And people tell you, we don't have to stand, we don't have to kneel, we don't have to do anything. They are at variance to what's going on in heaven. Because they're, they're prostrating themselves. They're standing, they're sitting, they're prostrating. All this bodily movement you see in the liturgy is something we do here because we have to worship with our bodies. Now, if I, if, I don't, if I keep on doing all these digressions, I'm never going to go through this thing. So I just keep on, on, on track here. So they fell on their faces and, and, and saying, so all of them are saying the same thing. Right? Not one of them is saying it. It's a common prayer of the church that we all say it together. 
We give thanks to thee, Lord God Almighty, who art and who wast, that thou hast taken thy great power and begun to reign. Notice the shift now. God now has began to reign. Right? Indicating he was not reigning before in the same way. Alright? That's very important. The nations raged, but thy wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, for rewarding thy servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear thy name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Never mind the details right now. All that we want to focus on is that there is a prayer of thanksgiving and of giving glory to God. Our prayers should always start like that. First thing is, give glory to God. So we don't sit down and we roll our list of petitions we, give, we sit down and we give glory to God first. And then we move on to our petitions. Then God's temple, again, no, notice how have, events in heaven occur as a response to the liturgy. The, once those 24 elders bent down and prayed and gave glory to God, then something happens. What? God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and heavy hail. That's another indication where we are not in the, in the beatific vision heaven, right? How can, we, how can we portray an earthquake in heaven? Okay? So, so those, those words are indicating a, a different reality than what we would consider to be an earthquake. Well, to have an earthquake, you better have earth. But we're up there. So earthquake is indicating something else. It's the, it's the, the ark is, I mean, the, the, the temple is filled with God's spirit. That is very important. Why? Because in Ezekiel, after the Lord showed Ezekiel what was happening beneath the temple, how the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders were, were, were um, worshipping false idols right under the temple, we see El, El Sakina, the Shekinah, the presence of the Lord departing from the temple. And the temple became desolate. Now here is the heavenly temple filled with the Holy Spirit. All these things you read right now is the, is the physical manifestation of God's presence. And now, you know how, what happens that usually we read it, and then we go, and heavenly hail, period. We stop. Chapter 12. Right? So, in between 11 and 12, we had what, you know, we had um, commercials. All right? So, we wipe out what we've read before. Now, we're starting a new chapter. But that's not how it's supposed to be read, right? Let me read it to you this way. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. So, what do you have here? You basically have the same reality, and we're going to see it in three forms. Okay? This is effectively the only way I know of that harmonizes the entire text without breaking it apart. Because people don't know what to do with this woman and the woman who's running on earth to the desert and the ark, right? These, this is a triptych. It's three portraits of the same reality. The ark, the woman in heaven closed with the sun, and the woman on earth are the same reality. But what is the difference? 
the location. And because the location changes, the representation changes with it. The first one is the heavenly temple. The ark is not described. It is only seen. We don't know what it looks like. Then we see this woman now where? In the cosmos. She's now in the cosmos. She's crowned. And she has the, 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 the moon under her feet. And then after that, we're going to see her running, taking refuge in the desert. Okay? According to the anagogical sense, the sense that, that accords to, to the church, that has to do with the church and the end times, it is very easy to see in this woman clothed with the sun, Our Lady. There's no question about that. The, the real question is, what is meant by this woman according to the literal sense? And we're going to deal with that when we come back. I'm not going to be able to deal with it today. But there's, the, the, the Marian element is very profound here, and we're going to cover it in detail. Right? I'm just pointing this out to you, um, that we, we need to really navigate this appropriately so we don't force the text to say something it is not saying, yet at the same time understand its full meaning. And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth and anguish for delivery. So, the first meaning of the moon, the stars, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars is what? What do we use the sun, the moon, and the stars for? It's a clock. It's a clock. A clock measuring what? Time. Time of what? Time for what? Beginnings of what? Empire. Kingdom. The whole purpose of this is to measure the beginning of kingdom. So every time a prophet was sent to a king and told them about, Behold, the, the, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, and the stars will fall. That meant, right? You know, you're, you're essentially, your clock is ticking, right? It's coming to an end. Battery's out. Your kingdom is going to be broken soon. That's what it means. All right? This is the prophetic usage of that language across Scripture. So now, what did we just say a little bit earlier? We said, we give thanks to thee, Lord God. Why? Because you have, you have taken thy great power and begun to what? Reign. So that is indicating what? The beginning of what? A new kingdom. And isn't that interesting? We see a queen right when that new kingdom is starting. And what is she? What, is she, what does she have on, on her? She's wrapped with the sun. Her crown has the stars and the moon. What does that suggest? Not ageless. It's close. Pardon? Conquer, queen of everything. It simply suggests that she's got time under control. You see it? She's got time under control. Meaning what? History is now hers. She makes history. That kingdom will never pass away. That's the meaning of it. 
Now, I'm not making this up. Christ himself said it. Right? My kingdom is not of this world. Meaning, because if it's not of this world, it's the only kingdom that will be able to control this world. Time has no effect on it. So it is the establishment, the securing of the kingdom in the world that has its roots where? Where does it have its roots? Not just in heaven, be very more specific. Where? Kingdom of God. But where, does it, where, where is it coming from? Where is it emanating from? Where is that woman coming from? It's good to, if you had scripture with you, because you can refer back to the passage that happened right before the commercial break that I told you about. The ark. The ark inside what? The temple. The temple. It's after the, fa- after the temple has, in heaven has been opened and the ark is seen, we see this woman who now has control over time. Okay? So, cause and effect. It is the same reality. That ark in heaven, in the heavenly temple, where it is secure forever and ever, no one can steal, is the source is the source from which this woman has power. And by the way, um, did you notice? We give thanks to thee. We give thanks. What is giving thanks in Greek? Eucharisto. Okay? Eucharisto. So we're giving Eucharisto. It's the Eucharistic prayer. Liturgy, liturgy, liturgy. Did I say liturgy? She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. We'll go in detail and try to understand exactly what is going on here, which child is dead, why is she crying out in pangs. Uh, Some of the um, uh, comments or some of the ideas advanced against the notion that this is Mary is precisely the fact that she's crying out in pangs. During delivery. Why? Because crying out in pangs of delivery is what? Curse. From where? Genesis. Genesis. Mary being immaculately conceived, she should not be under the curse. Therefore, she would not cry in pangs of delivery. That is the argument being made. However, we can argue, we can respond to that by saying that Mary gave birth, birth, birth to Christ twice. She gave birth to him in Bethlehem, but she gave birth to the rest of us on the cross. Okay? On the cross. And if you recall the sword that will pierce her, her, her heart, we're going to go over all of this when we come back. Now, behold, a great and, and another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she, was a pla- where she has a place prepared by God in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. The 1,260 days brings us back to the three and a half years, which we've seen before. It's this half of seven 
that says that this is going to last for a given period of time, but not forever. Now, we will study again in detail what that dragon is, why does he have seven heads and ten, and ten, and ten horns, and why is he red? And no, it's not because of communist China or communist Russia. Although, in both instances, you might argue that there are emanations of the dragon, and you may not be completely wrong. But that was not what was intended here. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. When does this war occur? Notice the, 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 the chronology of a sequence of events. The war did not occur prior to the temple being opened and the ark being seen. The war occurred after the temple being opened and the ark is seen and that woman is crowned queen and she brought forth a male child. Then suddenly the angels take action. Why did they wait that long? Incidentally, here when we say that they threw the dragon from heaven, it, it does not mean, again, heaven as in where God is. Rather, it means heaven as in the sky. And that indicates what? Positions of power. Remember when, uh, when Nimrod wanted to build the Tower of ba Babel, he wanted it to reach the gates of heaven. Right? It's a position of power. So now, Satan is losing his position of power over the whole world. That's what it means. So now suddenly the angels, Michael, who is the prince of the angels, have been empowered to do what they could not do before. They've always longed to break his power, but they did not have that ability before. Now they do. Now they do. Remember what I said, that through the mystery, that the church will teach the wisdom, not just to humans, but to angels. Don't understand wisdom as in plain intellectual understanding. We say of Solomon that Solomon had wisdom. He prayed for wisdom and he received it. Part of the powers of Solomon, part of his wisdom, was the power of exorcism. He was an exorcist. Yes, Solomon was an exorcist. If you read what the rabbis wrote about him and what he did, he was able to cast out demons because of wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to see divine truth. And part of the rite of exorcism is to ask the, the evil spirit its name. It's part of seeing the truth. Solomon had that. Now, that now is effectively communicated to the angels. Understand that it isn't through their natural powers or even through their sanctity that those angels were able to cast Satan down from his position of power. It is only through the liturgy that this happens. And what keeps the forces of evil in check on earth is that boring Sunday Mass you go to. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. When you read blood of the Lamb, don't just see in your mind a Lamb with a bit of blood trickling down. See the Lamb 
on the altar of sacrifice. See the lamb as part of the liturgy. When you hear blood of the lamb, understand the liturgy. The sacrificial liturgy that allowed that lamb to be offered up as a whole burnt holocaust for our sins. Okay? It isn't just the blood of the lamb separate from anything else. And they have, yeah. And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Rejoice then, O heaven, and you that dwell therein, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when a dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had borne the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to, her, to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river which the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So, the, the dragon is thrown from his position of power, but he doesn't mean he's powerless. He lost control or lost his kingship over the world. It doesn't mean he's powerless, though. He is now in a lesser position but he is going to go after the woman and those who, who are her offspring. I'm going to point this out to you, and um, you, may, uh, you may point them out to your Protestant friends. Even if you were not to argue that this woman is Mary, and I, but I will argue thus next when we come back, but even if we, without arguing, even if we said that this woman is the church, which is also true, in one sense it is the church. Notice what he says. Notice what St. John says. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are the offspring of this woman? Those who keep the commandments of God. What commandments? The Ten Commandments. Huh? And bear testimony to Jesus. Keep the commandments and bear testimony to Jesus. They are what? Anyone who is keeping the commandments and bear testimony to Jesus is what? Is the offspring of the woman. Okay? From this we derive two things. Number one, the church is our mother. Number two, any, anyone out there keeping the commandments... And giving testimony to Jesus. How, does you give, how do you give testimony to Jesus? The Lord himself said it, right? By giving your life out of love. So anyone who can keep the Ten Commandments and give his life out of love to someone else is what? Is daughter and son of the church. This is the foundation of the teaching of the Second Vatican Council. Right? That extends, that confirms two things. Number one, no salvation without the church. You see it? We don't fabricate that stuff. The church is fully biblical. This tells you right away, no salvation without the church. You have to be the daughter and son of the church to be saved. 
But number two, everyone out there, everyone out there who's doing good, everyone out there who's bearing the name of Jesus is walking, is getting closer to mom. It's coming back home. So when we see our brothers and brothers and sisters out there doing good, we encourage them. When we see Muslims doing good, we encourage them. When we see atheists doing good, we encourage them. Because anyone doing good out there cannot do it apart from the Holy Spirit. So what do we see? We see our mother reaching out to all the world and trying to bring the children back home. That is why John Paul II always had no problem affirming the good whatever he saw it. He talked to feminists. He affirmed the good. They did. He also chided them on the bad. They did. Likewise. Therefore, we do not belong to a political party. We do not belong to a nation. We uphold the good wherever we see it. And then when we live in a place, we are faithful to this place because of our church. You understand? This is foundational. Now, of course, we're going to take it to, to, uh, to the next degree when we see that not only are we the children of, of the church, we're also the children of Mary. I'll point out one thing to you as well before we go on. Uh, it says here that, um, Then the dragon was angry with the woman. Uh, angelic beings, as you recall from our series, are not like us. I'm angry this morning. In the afternoon, I forgot I was angry. In the evening, I forgot what was I what was. I don't even remember why I was angry and what was the reason of me being angry. Right? So I'm not angry anymore. It's gone. May have been the case that in the morning at five o'clock there is a, you know, a woman walking down with a bloodhound that didn't stop barking and she's talking on the phone and then the the, the garbage truck came and 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 hit a car, and I got up with this massive headache, and I just, I, I was so upset. By four o'clock, I kind of forgot the details. This is how we are. That's why we human beings can fall away from grace and can come back to it, just as St. Peter did. Okay? Not so with the angels, not so with angelic beings. Once they decide on something, it's forever. They will never go back. Why? Because they have all the, all the elements of knowledge they need to make an informed decision. They're not like us. They don't go through a rational process to think it through. They're intellectual beings, but they're not rational where they're going to proceed from point A to point B to point C to point D. Right? They see it, they understand it. So, he was angry with the woman. That was 2,000 years ago. What is he now? Angry with the woman. Hmm. And all of her offsprings, right? All of her offsprings. So, her offsprings are of one of two sexes, Right? Male or female? Men or women? Of these two, who do you think he's more angry with? Yeah. You get it? He hates women 
more than he hates men. Because the instrument of his defeat is a woman. He was defeated by a woman. So, if you really think about it today, you see how uh, women are being dressed, how they dress. So, I was walking with my wife, uh, and there's these guys in front of us, and all the guys had shirts down to here, all the way down to, uh, you know, to, to, their, to, the, to, the, to their hands, basically. Shorts beneath the knee, and baggy, baggy clothes. And they had this girl with them, and she could have just as well be naked. It would make no difference. Angry with the woman? Now, on the, on the altar, Christ says, this is my body broken that you may have life. Right? Okay. What does a woman say when she has an abortion? This is your body broken that I may have life the way I want to. He's angry with the woman. So, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean we're going to be afraid of him, because you know what? There's nothing you can do to make him more afraid of you. I just As I told you, he's as... I mean, there's nothing you can do to make him more um, angry with you. Nothing. Because he's as angry as he can be. There are no degrees within. See, we don't understand pure evil, because we're not pure evil. But that is pure evil. There's no good in him. None whatsoever. And he hates you as much as he can hate you. No matter what you do, he hates you just the same. So it's not about, I'm not telling you this to be afraid of him. I'm telling you this to make you aware of the strategy, of the way the game is being played, especially you women. And I, again, repeat and bring it to your attention. You have a great responsibility when it comes to fashion. You are going to be held responsible for the way you dress. You dress with tight shirts, tight pants, short stuff. I'll tell you, you are going to be held responsible, and severely so. I know you don't hear that out there, because he's angry with a woman. He doesn't want you to hear it. You might think I'm being judgmental. That's the case. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to change my stand. Because you can't say scripture. Scripture, You have a great responsibility in the way you dress. Far greater than you ever thought. And I would recommend you spend serious time considering the implications of fashion and the way you dress and the image you project. And there's a very simple dress, there's a simple test you can do to yourself. You stand in front of the mirror and ask yourself this simple question. If Our Lady was here, would she approve of the way I'm dressed right now? And if your mind and heart, there is an answer that says, no, change. And if you don't dare to change, because suddenly you're going to be different or old-fashioned, I'm going to tell you this. You better be old-fashioned in heaven than fashionable in hell. Okay. Chapter 13. Now, so, he, he's now about to engage in battle against those children. How does he do it politically? So what we saw right now is effectively there's a spiritual battle that took place between Michael, the angel, and and Satan and the demons, and they were defeated. They came down, and the battle is ongoing. They went after the church, persecution. 
Right? We're going to see that in more detail later. But now that the woman had escaped his clutch, he's going to shift gear. He's going to go after her children. Remember, Herod went after whom? Pharaoh with Moses went after whom? Planned Parenthood is going after whom? See the pattern? Okay. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems upon its horns and a blasphemous name upon its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a, be- like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth followed the beast with wonder. Men worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name, and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and tongue and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone slays with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. All right, who's that beast? Rome. This is Rome. Well, I will show you why, I'll show you why it's Rome when we get to it. Uh, we'll go back to the, go back and read Daniel chapter 9, see the four beasts, the fourth beast represent, resembles this one. In a, in a vision to Daniel, Gabriel the angel explained to Daniel that those four beasts he had, he had seen are four kingdoms and that the fourth one is the worst of them all. So this is Rome in a nutshell. And we're talking about the persecutions of Rome against Christians and we'll, we'll see what, those, uh, what, those, you know, what these symbols represent in more detail. So this is the beast that, come out of, that came out of the sea. Verse 11, Then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. So, the sea is always a symbol of what? Gentiles. Very good. The earth is a symbol of what? Israel. So now, this is the other beast that comes out of Israel. And what does it look like? Which rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Two horns like a lamb. Who has two horns like a lamb? We've seen this multiple times. Well, the Pope, the bishop, and before them all, who? The high priest. The high priest. Right? The high priest. It looked like a priest, but spoke like a dragon. And what did Jesus call the whole Sanhedrin? You what? Brood of vipers. Brood of vipers. Now, is that anti-Semitism? Am I attacking all Jews out there? No. Just as we had corrupt Jews back then, and holy Jews like Mary and Paul and Peter and all of them, we have today corrupt Catholics and holy Catholics. All right? And let's not get ahead of ourselves or you know, start making, drawing the wrong kind of conclusions. So there are two things we need to avoid. Number one, calling a cat a cat. 
Right? The Sanhedrin was corrupt. I'm not the one who said it. The Lord himself said it. You got a problem with this? You got a problem with Jesus. So we have to say it this way. Number two, not to go overboard and say, Aha, you see, all our problems are because of the Jews. Well, that's nonsense. Okay? We don't need the Jews to create problems. We can create problems very well all on our own. All right. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Remember what they said when they told Pilate, crucify him, crucify him? What did Pilate say back to them? Shall I crucify your king? What did they answer back? We have no king but... See it? The first beast is Rome. We have no king but... All right. It works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men, and by the signs which it, it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwelt on earth, bidding them make an image for the beast which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast should even speak, and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Again, remember Alice in Wonderland syndrome. All right. Just when you read those things, realize, okay, I'm not talking about a robot here. Something else is going on. We'll, we'll go through and then understand what is going on here exactly. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand, on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. Uh, I'm not going to make you wait. 666 represents two things. Number one, it represents um, uh, Nero. When you take uh, the name Kaiser Nero, you write it down. Kaiser Neron, you write it down in Hebrew. You add the, the, the values of all the numbers. Remember, Hebrew did not have a separate set of symbols for numerals like we do. It was more like Latin, where we use the X and the V and the I and the L and the C as numbers. So when you have those letters appear in a name, they have their values. You add them up. You take the name Kaiser Neron, you add it all up, you get 666. As a matter of fact, there is one copy, at least one copy of, of uh, the book of Revelation, where that number was said to be 616, because the copyist took the name Kaiser Nero. He dropped the N. So you ended up with 616 instead of 666. That's the first meaning. The second meaning is actually uh, Solomon. And we'll see why it is Solomon. And then the third meaning had to do with the number six itself, which is the sixth day of creation, the day where animals and men were created. Man was created on the sixth day, but he was created for the seventh day. So, for instance, when David fought Goliath, Goliath, Goliath was set to stand six, not feet, I forgot the measurement. Let's just say feet, but it's not feet. Cubit, possibly. Six cubit tall. Six. Was he exactly six cubit tall? Did they took an atomic measurement of him? With laser beams? No. The indication of six is to tell you right, the beastly aspect of him. All right? Whenever you see six, it's always related to the beasts, the animals. In Hebrew, I've already told you that, you, cannot, you don't have superlative. You can't say good, better, and best. If you want to say better, you say good, good. You want to say best, you say good, good, good. You triplet. That's why we say God is holy, 
holy, holy. And God was present in the holy of holies, which is the holiest place on earth containing the one who is holy, holy, holy. So, uh, holy, holiest, holier. You get it? Well, six, six, six. More beastly than that, you're dead. All right? We'll go back and look at the symbol in more detail when we come back. Then I looked, and lo, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So notice, again, the beast, the folks who were with the beast were marked the way you stamp animals. Right? The 144,000 had the name of the Lord written. There's stamping, there's writing, right? One denote bestiality, the other denote intelligence. Those are the same 144,000 we saw before, which were sealed. They're on earth, and they're the one conducting the battle with their prayers, sacrifices, and suffering. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpers playing on their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No, no one could learn that song except the, the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defied themselves with women, for they are chaste. Uh, defining themselves with women by the men does not mean uh, that they are all men. Okay? The indication here is not necessarily that are all men, although you could think this way. It's an expression to say that they are not, they didn't commit the sin of um, adultery, that, they're not, that they didn't fee, uh, fall into lust. Our Lady told uh, the, uh, the three angels of Fatima that there are more, no, no I'm sorry, she told St. Catherine of uh, St. Teresa of Avila that there are more people who fall in hell because of the sin of uh, the flesh than any other sin. Because it is the closest to idolatry. And um, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are spotless. Notice the first fruits. This is again liturgical. We have the Feast of First Fruits in the, in the, in the Jewish liturgy. And first fruits indicate what? Second fruits, and third fruits, and fourth fruits, etc., etc. So therefore, there is the cycle of planting, seeding, nurturing, harvesting, and we repeat. And we repeat. So when Christ told his disciples, the kingdom of, of, of God may be likened like a field where the Son of Man plants, and the enemy comes and he plants the, the chaff. So the Son of Man plants the wheat, and the, the, the enemy plants the chaff, and then... It's going to be harvested. Sure, it's going to be completely harvested at the end of time, but also there's an ongoing harvest, cyclical, so that God is constantly purifying His church. The kingdom of heaven is the church on earth. And it's bearing fruit regularly, and the enemy is attacking the church regularly, and regularly the angels are actually going through and bringing that fruit in. Then we have those four proclamations beginning with verse 6, then verse 8, verse 9, and it ends where here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Endurance is the name of the game. 
not being successful, enduring. That's key. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord henceforth. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Before the opening of the, of the temple of the Lord, those who died were not blessed because they went into limbo. Now, heaven is open. They are indeed blessed. They can rest. That's why it's henceforth. And then we see on the cloud, beginning verse 14, the one who, is, who has a sharp sickle in his hand, and another angel came out of the temple, came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat upon the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he did so. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had power over fire, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse brittle for 1,600 stadia. And then it finishes chapter 15. Then I saw a great, another portent in heaven, great and wonderful, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for with them the wrath of God is ended. Right? So the, the wine press is now going to bring forth the cups of wrath, and with them the judgment of God on earth. And his, the, fi- the, the final steps required for the establishment of his kingship, kingdom on earth, are going to come to an end. This is a kite level view of the last trumpet, how it is structured, how it's all connected, how it flows seamlessly. No, there aren't passages added here later by some copyist. No, these are not three different visions composed together by a later editor. The, the silver bullet, the, the, I meant the silver lining through it all, is the liturgy. It is a liturgy that allows us to hold to it, and we see how the activity in the temple by the angelic ministers are being mirrored on earth, and how they have effect on earth, and how the liturgy drives the whole world. That's why it's a message of hope, and that's why Revelation applies to us today, right now. If you read this book, as many commentators do, as applying to the end times, if all I told you right now will will come to bear only when the end, the end of the world will come, then two conclusions will be derived. Number one, this world is not worth saving. It's just going to go down and get worse and worse and worse as time goes by. So there is an underlying pessimism. Let's not do anything about it. And number two, what do I care about all of this is going to happen at the end time. Right? And I'll, I'll, I'll show you how the fundamental principle among many Protestants that God predestined us and that our works has have no value in his eyes, slant or torque their understanding of this book towards the end times because there's nothing to do. Nothing we can do can have any effect. Our work is useless. God has decided who goes to heaven, who goes to earth from the beginning. Therefore, none of that can apply through history. The liturgy is meaningless. It has no power over worldly affairs. The world out there doesn't need to be saved. It's just going to go down the tube. We shouldn't do anything about it. 
you're really talking about two completely different views of the world, of salvation history, of the role of Christians in the world. It is fundament- the difference is fundamental, actually, much more so than we think. That's why Catholicism has always gone hand-in-hand with optimism. A, pes- a, 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 a Catholic who is pessimist is an oxymoron. You can't be Catholic and be pessimist. By optimism, I don't mean, you know, gaily going out there and hopping from tree to tree and then thinking the world just this rosy, wonderful place to live. I mean, it's re- realism founded on the perennity of the liturgy that tells us, go forth and make disciples of all nations. God bless you. We have time for questions. Yes. The question is, we counted two beasts. One is from the, the, the sea, and this is effectively Rome. And the other one is the priest that comes from the land, and this is the Sanhedrin. All right? Yes. Yes, the question is, the, uh, the, when we speak of Rome and we speak of the high priest, we're talking about historical realities during the time of St. John. Yes, the Roman Empire as it was back then, and the, the, the authorities in the Temple of Jerusalem as it was back then. Yes? Yes, the question is, angels understand things sort of intuitively, and once they've understood, understood it and made a decision, they cannot go back on the decision. Therefore, those decisions are weighty, indeed. That's why, angel, that's why demons are, never, are not redeemable. Because when they decided not to be with God, they, do it with, they did it with full knowledge. There was no ignorance in their decision. And that's why we say always that we speak of the mystery of iniquity. That sin in the end is really a mystery. How could somebody in full knowledge make such a choice? But that is what they did. Yes. I, yeah, so I would say right away that we, you know, we have a whole series. It's four CDs that go in all detail on the angels. So any question you have on the angels, you probably will have, you will, you will find it covered there. The answer to your question is that angels were not created like us. They don't grow. They were born, they were created like Adam in their, in their full capacity with all the knowledge they need to, to make a decision. There's no growth in their part. Yes, two more questions. Uh, the... I think it's a monk who one day sat down and broke all of Scripture into chapters and verses. If you go back to the original scroll, there are no chapters, there are no verses. And most of the time, it's fairly well done. There are places where it's unfortunate. This is one of them. The question is about why the break in the end of chapter 11 and beginning of chapter 12. It's, it's because of the numbering scheme. Yes. yes. It, it actually brings a good point, which is that, as Rich just said, when you read scripture, you need to always read it in context. Okay, what happened before? So when you start a new chapter, don't, again, think commercials. Let me forget what happened. A new thing is starting. No, no, no. Go back and read what happened before in the previous chapter so you can link it. Because it was never written the way we see it today. Last question? Yes. The question is in chapter 7, now war arose in heaven. Are we going to expand on that? Absolutely. We're going to go into detail and really understand what is meant by this war. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, 
please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.